0: Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to go back a little bit. We are talking about the Upper Room Discourse in the Upper Room here. So I thought it would be appropriate to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, We're still going to dive into the scriptures, but um, one of the difficulties for a, a preacher is the tension between diving deep and staying at a high level so you see the whole of what the text means Um, it is easier in in my opinion as a preacher it's easier to just drill down deep um, to to take one verse to take one word of one verse and to just drill down to figure out the meaning of that one word in that one verse and preach that as the, the text now that's not wrong um sometimes that is is kind of passed off as an expositional sermon and to a certain degree it is but expositional sermons are sermons that preach as the main point of the sermon what the main point of the text is and sometimes for a preacher it's difficult to keep the main point of the text in view if you're diving in so deeply if you're going if you're drilling down so deeply sometimes you miss you know the forest for the trees so to speak We try to balance that. A preacher's job is to make sure you understand the point of a word in a text, but also to understand that text as it fits in the passage, and the passage as it fits in the book, and the book as it fits in the Bible. So when we come to the Upper Room Discourse, we have spent, I looked at uh, the sermons that we have done on the Upper Room Discourse, chapter 13 through 16, not even including 17. We've spent 20 sermons on 13, 14, 15, and 16. So 20 sermons covering four chapters, um, great time in the text, but my fear is that maybe as we have been diving so deeply into specific topics that Jesus is discussing, we're forgetting the whole thrust of this passage as a whole, that the upper room discourse, the purpose of what Jesus is saying, is so clear in what this text, uh, what Jesus himself says Um So before before we get to chapter 17, which I have been longing for the day that we get to dive into chapter 17 and chapter 17, we are going to slow down. So 27 or 20 sermons on chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, maybe 20 sermons on chapter 17, because chapter 17 is amazing. Um, I have a bunch of quotes I'm, I'm getting ready for next Sunday when we start chapter 17 I think we're only going to get verses 1 through 3 maybe just verse 1 and 2 a bunch of quotes by a bunch of really awesome old dead people that say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible um, chapter 17 is amazing we know it as the high priestly prayer it, it's just that our high priest praying on our behalf before the father and um, amazing text I, I would actually call it the lord's prayer that's what we're going to call it you know the lord's prayer in, in matthew 6 our father who art in heaven um, that's really the disciples prayer because jesus tells them to pray things that he himself could never pray right he can't pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors um, same thing here this prayer is for his disciples but it's really the lord's prayer because he's praying things that we could never pray like lord restore father restore the the glory that i had before creation was we, we can't pray that so uh, it's really the Lord's Prayer. And what I want to do is, is make a delineation, because if, if you notice, actually just turn to chapter 17 really quick. If you notice, if you have a red letter edition Bible, the entirety of this chapter in chapter 17 is red letters. Uh, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, those are the only black letters, and then boom, we move into red letters. And it's all Jesus speaking, praying. So we, we're, we're done with, the explicit teaching of jesus we're done with the discourse of jesus he's definitely going to be teaching us in his prayer but it's not going to be explicit teaching so that's why i want to make a a delineation between chapters 13 through 16 and chapter 17 i want to let chapter 17 stand alone by itself although it is connected and we'll see those connections but i want us to just kind of wrap up 13 through 16 this morning i want to wrap it up i don't know about you but The older that I get, the more I think about my death. Um, Every day, every day I think about my death. Um, The day of my death is on God's calendar. Uh, it, It cannot be moved. It's there in ink that will never be changed, no matter what anybody does. I can't change it. You can't change it. And I wonder if I knew what that day was. If I knew, let's say, Friday, this Friday, I'm going to die and be with the Lord, what would this week hold for me? What would you do if you knew that this was the last week you had on earth? We talk a lot about this. We talk about spending time with friends, share the gospel, spending time with family. If we knew that this was the last week that we had, we would want to make sure that our family members understood the gospel, understood where we are going, understood how to live while we're gone until they see us again. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. This is Jesus' last words to his disciples. He wants to make sure in one final conversation that they know I'm, I'm about to die and I want you to know how to live life while I'm gone. Um, this is what I would do with my kids if, if I knew that I was going to die. I would write things down for them. I'd sit them down and talk to them. I'd want to make sure that you know that daddy's leaving He's going to be with Jesus, and here's how to live life even though I'm gone. That's what Jesus is saying, how to live life even though he's gone. He does it with such tender care and compassion. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look with one thread throughout chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. I want to look at Jesus' instructions to his disciples how to live life as a Christian while Jesus is gone. That's really what he's going to be teaching us, how to live life as a believer in Jesus's absence. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to do something that I would never, ever, ever encourage any preacher ever to do. We're going to look at 10 points. Now, don't let that overwhelm you because we've already looked at most of these together. Well, we've already looked at these texts together. So we're going to go high level. we've, We've drilled down deep, not as deep as we could go over these 20 sermons, but we've drilled down deep. But now I want to back up, pull back, see the entirety of this discourse and really see it under that heading, under that umbrella of Jesus is preparing his disciples to live life without him. So how are we supposed to live in light of his absence as well? So let me pray. Ask God's blessing on our uh, a little bit different morning this morning. God, we are so thankful for your word so thankful that we have a copy of it even as we celebrated with the reformation uh, in october the only reason that we have a copy of your word in our possession is because of what took place during the reformation and god what a privilege it is to be able to hold the very words that the holy spirit spoke and wrote down through men carrying them along so that they would write down exactly what it is that you would have to say to us this morning How amazing to think that your spirit, 2,000 years ago, wrote down these words through John with us in mind. And even though they are explicitly given to the disciples in the upper room, by default, as believers in Christ, we receive the truth, and by implication, we live upon it. And even as we'll see next week in chapter 17, you actually pray for us specifically, not just your disciples, but us specifically. So God, I just pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see clearly the instruction that you gave to your disciples as to how to live life in your absence. What should our priorities be as believers? God, thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you that we are not like the prophets of Baal, wondering, is this what's going to get your attention? Is this what you want from us? Wondering your, your mood, wondering if you're angry, or if you're sad, or if you're happy. We don't have to wonder. We have been led in all truth by the Spirit as promised to the disciples in the upper room. So God, guide us this morning in all truth. Guide us to see clearly the way that we are to live in light of the absence of Christ. And yet he is right here with us. Be our teacher spirit this morning. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in your name. Amen. So let's go back to John 13. John 13. And we are going to look at 10 ways that Jesus is going to instruct his disciples to live life without him. Even though he's still there, he's gone. And even though he's not there, he's there. This is a crazy section of scripture. His disciples are just as befuddled as we might be. And he's going to leave them with instruction. He does not say, you know what, just figure it out. He says, let's, let's work together. And he gives them really 10 main points as to how they're to live life. So the first one is this, humbly serve others humbly serve others if you want to live as a believer in christ jesus you must humbly serve others chapter 13 verse 1 now before the feast of the passover jesus knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end during supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of simon to betray him jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. That's what we're saying, God of God. God sent from God. God coming forth from God. He He had come forth from God, was going back to God as God himself. He got up from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel. He girded himself and he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And if you drop all the way down to verse 18... Or verse uh, 14, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. An example of love, an example of humble love. We talked about this where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. This is for the lowest slave. This is the, the most wretched detail that you're going to be going through as a slave. That you have the detail of washing people's feet as they enter into the house to eat and yet jesus gladly does that and he gives us an example that we should follow of humble service it comes from love only truly humble people can truly love love is the most common word that's used in these five chapters and so jesus on the outset says one of the ways that you need to live life as I'm about to leave, I want to set an example before you that you would do as I have done. That you would do as I have done. Not just believe what I've told you, but live out what I have shown to you. J.C. Ryle says it this way Nothing is more common than to hear people say of doctrine or duty, we know it, we know it. While they still sit in unbelief and disobedience, they actually seem to flatter themselves that there's something credible and redeeming in knowledge, even when it bears no fruit in the heart. Or in character, or in life. Yet the truth is precisely the other way. To know what we ought to be, believe and do, and yet be unaffected by our knowledge only adds to the guilt in the sight of God. So Jesus begins his instructions with an example of what we should do, and then he's gonna tell us what we should think, how we should believe. But he starts off by saying, If you are going to be my disciple and you're gonna follow me, even in my absence, You need to do what I did here, which is humbly serve others. The second is, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to trust in God's perfect plan. You need to trust in God's perfect plan. The first one, humbly serve others, is chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Trusting in God's perfect plan is chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. He says in verse 18, I don't speak of all of you, namely that all of you are are clean and you're blessed if you do the things that I'm telling you to do. I know the ones that I have chosen, but it is that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. What Jesus is saying is, guys, the cross isn't an accident. Judas's betrayal isn't an accident. It's not taking me by surprise. I'm telling you this now so that you won't be surprised. You will know. You'll have ringing in your ears. Jesus told us this was going to happen. Judas himself was not a surprise. Judas tells us, he teaches us very clearly. You can be extremely close to Jesus and yet be unsaved. You can be a very convincing hypocrite. You remember around the table, one of you will betray me tonight, and everybody says, is it I, is it I, is it I, is it I? Nobody says, hmm, if I had to take a guess, I'd say Judas. Nobody says that. You can be a very convincing hypocrite. You can be very near to Jesus and yet still be eternally lost. We asked our own hearts this question as we went through this section. um, Are we like Judas? Are we like Judas in any way? Judas hated Jesus. He was greedy. Are we greedy? Well, check. That's not good. Judas was selfish. He only cared about himself. Are we selfish? Yes. Just ask our spouses. We look at All the things that Judas was, and it doesn't look good for us, but all of those things, none of those are the unpardonable sin. All of those things, if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I love you more than anything in this world, and I desperately desire to be reconciled with you, that's what would set us apart from Judas. Matthew chapter 7, many are going to say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. There was no intimacy in our relationship. You didn't love me. You didn't trust me. Depart from me, I never knew you. What are you going through in your life right now as a follower of Christ that you find difficult to trust that God has a plan for it? You're just like the disciples. The disciples are going to scatter in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to wonder what this all means they're going to hide in the upper room when jesus is dead and buried they're not going to obey him and go to galilee they're not even going to trust that he is raised from the dead when the women come no we have to see it for ourselves and then thomas no i have to actually touch his side i have to see him and touch him and jesus says here before any of this happens will you trust me i have a plan none of it's a surprise are you going to trust me humbly serve others trust in god's perfect plan that brings us to number three follow jesus alone as you're serving others and loving others as you're trusting god follow jesus alone this is chapter 13 verses 31 through chapter 14 verse 6 follow jesus alone first inherent in this section in verses 34 through 35 jesus gives the new commandment a new commandment i give to you that you love one another even as i have loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so first just notice there's love again humbly serve one another you can't serve uh, one another if you aren't loving one another so love one another and that will set us apart when christians love each other they display christ in ways that nothing can so again inherent in that statement is the question are we living out that new commandment not new in, in the fact that It had never been said before, but knew as far as example and knew as far as power, because Jesus is going to die on the cross to win for them the ability to do what he is asking them to do. But drop down to verse 33. Notice um, he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going You cannot come. That's why chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why would they be troubled? Well, just three very specific things. Number one, Jesus is leaving. The guy that they devoted three and a half years of their life to, he's out of here. Somebody's going to betray him. Nobody knows who that is. John does. But John is so uh, surprised by that statement, so in shock. And he watches Judas leave that he doesn't even say a word. And then Peter is explicitly told, you're going to deny me. So we have Jesus is going to die. He's leaving and they can't go with him. Uh, Someone's going to betray Jesus, somebody from their inner circle. And Peter, the, the leader of the disciples, is going to deny Jesus and fall away. There's a lot of reasons to be troubled. But Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Instead, believe in me. He tells us, he goes on to talk about heaven, and he tells us that heaven is the ultimate answer for a troubled heart. Jim Boyce so perfectly says, what is a Christian to do when the world he knows falls in? The answer that is he is to take himself in hand by a deliberate exercise of his mind in which he brings such great truths to himself of and then meditates upon God's great strength and promises. Jesus did not say mull over your problems. He didn't even say tell me about your problems, though, of course, we're free to do that. Instead, he said, do not be troubled. Do not let your present troubled state continue. So if Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, then our hearts need not be troubled. (laughs) If only it was that easy. Don't be troubled. Okay, I won't. Done. But he says, we can be victorious if we will remind ourselves of what we know of him and trust him. And I would add to that, follow him. This is where he says, verse 6, a verse you all know. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way to get to the Father except through Jesus. So it's actually very interesting because Philip's going to say, or Thomas is going to say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Verse 5, how do we know the way? We don't know where you're going. He says, where I'm going, you'll be with me down the road. You can't be with me now. And I am the way to get to that place. So I am the way to get to me that doesn't make any sense unless we're talking about an infinite god who is the way to draw us to himself he alone is the way to be reconciled so follow jesus alone there's going to be temptation to go after other lesser gods there's going to be temptations to go after other desires other satisfactions there's going to be temptations to follow jesus plus something else and that's why jesus says me alone the way the truth the life add anything to jesus and you lose jesus So follow me alone, even though you're not going to see me. Follow me. Follow me. Salvation is through Christ alone. Number four, the fourth lesson, worship Jesus, who is God. How are we to live when Jesus is gone? He's done his work. He's left. How are we to live? We're to worship him as God. He is God. This is chapter 14, verses 7 through 15, 7 through 15, 14, verses 7 through 15. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If we truly believe that, we will worship Jesus. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We're going to worship him. Who is Jesus to you? The disciples' hearts are troubled because their master is leaving. And as they, in their troubled state, are wondering, what are we supposed to do? Jesus reminds them, I'm God. Don't let your heart be troubled. I have a plan. The Father has a plan. This isn't a surprise to me. You're a part of this plan. I'm working for you. I'm preparing a place for you, and and I will come back to take you to that place. You want to be with me? You will be with me. But the question is, why do we want to be with Jesus? Why do we want to be with him? Because of what he has to offer? think so often we present christ that way we present christ as follow him because he'll make your life better and i understand if you were to say that what you mean by that i totally get that and i agree with you but we have to be very careful we talked about this and we're going to get to it in chapter 16 you're going to be hated by the world if they hated me they're going to hate you too Maybe the wonderful plan for your life that God has is martyrdom. Maybe it's to be persecuted. So the question is, will you follow Jesus, not mainly because of what he has to offer? Are you using Jesus to get to eternal life? Are you using Jesus to get out of hell? I, just, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll, I'll use Jesus. Or are you saying, wait, Not only do I not want to go to hell, but I want to be with the one who loved me and died for me and gave himself for me. And allow your passion for Christ to turn instead of what he can offer to who he is. And that's what he's saying here. Worship me for who I am. Follow me for who I am. Not just what I have to give, but who I am. Alistair McGrath says, if there is a heartbeat of the Christian faith, it lies in the sheer intellectual delight and excitement caused by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John Owen says, he, who, he is no Christian who lives not much in the meditation and mediation of Christ. Worship Jesus as God because he is God and He is our greatest treasure. Enjoy the benefits. But that's been the whole point of this book, right? This, this book is, are you believing because of the signs and terminating on the signs? I, I want Jesus to be my king because he can give me free bread, and I don't want to have to pay for bread. He can raise people from the dead, and I want to be raised from the dead. Or are you following Jesus because of who he is inherently, intrinsically, the value and the glory that he has in and of himself? But that leads us to number five. <laughs> if we know who Jesus is, we want to be with him every second of every day. And number five... Jesus is going to tell his disciples, don't be afraid of my physical absence. Don't be afraid of the physical absence of Jesus. He's leaving. Chapter 14, verses 16 through 31. I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. Don't be afraid of the physical absence of Jesus because he's going to send his spirit. Drop down to verse 27 of chapter 14. Verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So you will have the peace of Christ. Not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away. And then I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. It's not a surprise. I'm telling you beforehand. I want you to know it's not going to be a shock to you. And he tells us, don't be afraid i'm leaving but the holy spirit's coming and this is where it gets really good because he says okay you're worshiping me you're following me you love me and now i'm leaving don't let your heart be troubled don't be afraid of my absence because i'm going to send somebody to you and because of me sending the holy spirit to you number six how to live in light of his absence abide in christ i'm gone but you can still abide in me this is where the hinge is in this upper room discourse I'm leaving, you're troubled, you're afraid, you're worried, you're despairing. I'm going to be gone, but you can still abide with me. You can still live intimately walking with me. This is chapter 15 verses 1 through 7 or 1 through 17. Abide in Christ. You can remain in Jesus even though he's not there. So you don't have to fear his physical absence. You can remain in him even though he's leaving. He says in verse 1, "I am the true vine." My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you. I'm leaving, but I'm commanding you to stay with me, remain with me. I am no longer going to remain with you, but I'm commanding you to remain with me. And then I will remain with you. How does this work? It works because Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit's God, the Father's God, and they will never leave us or forsake us. Some people think that Christianity is a commitment to a set of doctrinal beliefs. Some people think Christianity is a commitment to a set of ethics. But Christianity, first and foremost, is not a theological system to agree with. It's not a model of morality to impose on people. Christianity is, first and foremost, a person to embrace. Christianity is about following Jesus because you love him because he first loved us. Christianity is about a person to cherish and treasure, a savior to believe, a redeemer to trust, a lord to submit to, a god to worship, a master to obey, a friend to enjoy, a father to love, a relationship, remain, abide in Christ. Without abiding in Christ, right doctrine and right ethics lose their value and only become a means of pride. We would just walk around saying, I'm a better Christian than you because I know more than you. I'm a better Christian because I do these things and you don't, or I don't do these things and you do. But Jesus says, no, it's not about that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So stare at love. Do you have a living, vibrant, organic relationship with Christ where you love him more than anything in this world? You won't if you don't understand what he did for you. Um, There's a great story about Abraham Lincoln who went to a a slave market and purchased a slave uh, from the slave market and then said, You're free. You're free. And the slave said, "Uh, I don't understand what that means. Where do you want me to go? Because I'm your property. I'm your possession. You purchased me. And Abraham Lincoln said, You're free to go. I purchased you, and now I'm giving you freedom. I'm setting you free. You can go wherever you want. The slave said, wait, you have allowed me through you buying me. You've allowed me to go wherever I want to go. I can go anywhere, right? Abraham Lincoln said, yeah, go. Where do you want to go? He said, I want to go with you. Wherever you go, I want to go. If you would love me that much to buy me and to grant me my freedom, I want to stay with you. Do you say that about your Savior? He purchased you with the price of his own life. So Jesus says, remain in me. Remain in me. Abide in me. We spent five sermons just on these 17 verses. We looked at God's family being defined by fruit and not just belief. There is such a thing as an unsaved believer, right? We looked at that with Judas. But we looked at the motivation. We don't bear fruit to get saved. We bear fruit because we are already saved. And we talked about that. There was a whole sermon on that itself. We do want spiritual productivity. We want to grow. We want to bear fruit. We looked at the means of that. We bear fruit through suffering and through scripture, through the vine dresser pruning us. But remember, the vine dresser's hand is never closer to us than when he's actually pruning us. So if you're going through hard times, he's going to get to this in chapter 16. If he's going through hard times, it is for your good. And if you took away the hard times, you would take away the good that he's trying to produce. Abide in Christ. Number seven, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. If you want to live as a disciple of Christ, do not be surprised when the world hates you. This is chapter 15, verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. We spent two sermons on these verses because they are so thematically connected. Love for Jesus is going to draw hatred from the world. The disciples are going to be known for their love, the world will be known for its hate. And once again, Jesus is telling before it happens what is going to happen so that when it happens, the disciples say, Oh, this didn't catch Jesus off guard. This doesn't catch us off guard. We understand what's taking place here. And they're not surprised. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. As we get to these last three, these hopefully are, are so close in our rear mirror that we remember them and they bring back... Um, things that we had discussed in the the previous uh, eight sermons seven sermons Um, so we'll go through them quickly and and we'll wrap it all up number eight if you are going to live as a disciple of christ as he leaves you must trust the spirit's guidance and work you will have to trust the spirit's guidance and work this is chapter 16 verses 5 through 15 verses 5 through 15 i'm going To him who sent me, you're not asking where you're going. Even though they had asked that, they were asking that, why aren't you staying with us, not where are you going? What is the work that you're doing? Because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. It's to your advantage. The Spirit is our comforter. He's our advocate. He's our parakletos, which means the one who comes alongside us to support us, to help us. He's our advocate. He's the world's prosecutor, and he's the one who leads us in all truth. Drop down to verse 13. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me. He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All the things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. He's going to author scripture in such a way that you will have me. The word incarnate you will have in front of you. Without scripture, we don't know God. Without scripture, we wouldn't personally know him. Obviously, you can know God through uh, creation, right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Look at the heavens and you'll see that there is a God. Uh, Romans 1, look at creation and you will be without excuse because you know that there is a God. But you must have this book. You must have the word of God to know him personally. It's very interesting to note in Psalm 19, it's really split up into those two sections about general revelation. You can know God through creation and then special, specific revelation. You know him through scripture. And the word God, Elohim, is used throughout those first, I think, seven verses. Just God. God, you can know him in a general sense, but then it, it turns to Lord. Covenant keeping, personal name of God, his actual name in verses 8 through 14. You can know him personally only through his word. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I am leaving, but that doesn't mean you won't be able to get to know me more personally. The Spirit's going to come and he's going to disclose everything to you so that you will know me even better than if I was physically present with you. Trust the Spirit's guidance and work. Number nine, place your joy and peace in unassailable truth. Place your joy and peace in unassailable truth. This is chapter 16. Verses 16 through 24. A little while you're going to have grief, and then a little while your grief will be turned to joy. Verse 20. This Verses 20 and 21 was the paradigm-shattering verse for me. Um, the last couple of weeks studying this verse, or these verses, he says, he does not say, you will have grief and then I'll give you joy. As if there are two things. He says, you will have grief and then he gives us that parable of sorts about the woman giving birth the very same thing that gives you grief will give you joy so the the thing that you despise right now that is bringing grief and despair and depression in your life god is working through that thing to bring about joy if you take that away you take joy away the very thing that's bringing us pain will bring us joy So often we place our hope and satisfaction and joy in what can be lost. Remember C.S. Lewis told us a couple weeks ago, don't place your confidence, your satisfaction, your hope in something that can be taken away. We should not love anything with um, the the satisfaction, the hope for satisfaction that we have in Christ. We shouldn't give that to anybody else because we're we're all sinners. We're all going to fail each other. That's why we look to Christ Christ is the only one that can say, I will never leave you or forsake you, and mean it and live it out. We can have peace no matter what is going on. There's a story that's told of a contest in which artists were to submit paintings and sculptures portraying their understanding of peace. Some showed beautiful sunsets. Some showed grand sceneries of majestic beauty and tranquility. But the winner of the contest was an artist who painted a bird in a nest attached to a branch protruding from the edge of a thundering waterfall that's what peace is in the midst of the storm you can be at rest and at peace peace is not trying to get out of the storm peace is remaining in the storm and saying it is well with my soul finally number 10 take courage that jesus has overcome the world i'm leaving you and the world's going to hate you but take courage i have overcome the world this is chapter 16 verses 25 through 33 Verses 25-33, through Jesus says, you know these verses, I've come forth from the Father, I'm I'm going into the world, now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to go back to the Father, and they say, oh, we believe, we believe, and Jesus answers verse 31, do you now believe, behold, an hour is coming, and already has come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone, because the Father's with me, but these things, and I think this is in all of these things, all the way back to the beginning of this discourse. Everything that I'm telling you, I speak to you so that in me you may have peace. You can't have peace outside of in me. You have to be in him. Remain in him. But in me you'll have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. So in me you'll have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But you can take comfort and don't let your heart be troubled. And you can be at peace because Christ has overcome the world already. It's already done. Therefore, Jesus is never surprised in our troubles. Our troubles never take him by surprise. He doesn't look at what's going on in our life going, oh, no, that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, But I'm God, so I can make it work for your good. That's not what's happening. A a lot of people make Romans 8, 28 to say that, right? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. A lot of people make it to say, I really wish that that was not happening to you. Uh, but I'll fix it. I'm God. I can make it work for your good. No, the good is through the difficulty. He's never surprised. He wasn't surprised about his own troubles. He's not surprised about our troubles. He jumps into the midst of our trouble. He cares for us, even though we struggle with that. We we're just reading Mark chapter 4 with our kids for family devotions last night. In the midst of the boat, uh, the boat's sinking. The disciples uh, are worrying about dying. They look at Jesus, who's asleep in the boat, and they say, teacher, do you even care that we're perishing you know you must not care because if you loved us you wouldn't have let this happen to us but since you let this happen to us you must not love us it's the exact opposite of what the upper room discourse teaches true love is jesus working for your greatest good and his greatest glory what's the greatest place in the bible that we see the glory of god on display it's at the cross in the midst of the pinnacle of suffering, in the worst tragedy that ever occurred. He's never missed one trouble that you're going through. He's here. He's with us. So he says, I'm leaving, and that's troubling, but I'm not leaving. I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to bring you to be with me. I will always be with you. The Father will be with you. Remember, we will make our abode with you. We're going to set up a, a tabernacle with you and reside with you so how are we to live as believers how are we to live as disciples of jesus christ who was here two thousand years ago that's what we celebrate at christmas incarnate word become flesh truth and grace dwelling among us died rose from the dead ascended to heaven is waiting to return to call us home what do we do in the in between in the already and not yet what do we do now I believe the upper room discourse teaches us we need to humbly serve others we need to trust in god's plan we need to follow jesus alone we need to worship jesus who is god we shouldn't be afraid of the physical absence of jesus because we can still remain in jesus we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us we need to trust the spirit's guidance and work we need to place our joy and peace in unassailable truth and we need to take courage because jesus has overcome the world that's what it means to be a follower of jesus so here's what i want to do As we wrap all of these four chapters up together, and we kind of, um, with a bookend on either side of 13 and 16, uh, see Jesus as one thread throughout this whole discourse, I want to try and distill it down and synthesize it down a little bit more, because 10 points, (laughs) if you're thinking about, okay, how do I follow Jesus? I need to remember 10 things, and no alliteration, and no helpful things at all. It's just, how are we supposed to remember I'm going to give you four, just as we wrap this up and conclude these chapters. Four ways in which we're to live our life based on these ten. Okay, Just look at at two, seven, nine, and ten for me. If you were able to get all ten, look at two, seven, nine, and ten. Trust God's perfect plan. Don't be surprised when the world hates you because Jesus said, hey, they're going to, but you can trust me. Place your joy and peace, number nine, in unassailable truth and take courage that Jesus has overcome the world. Don't be afraid trust in the father so as we wrap this up let me give you these four points number one trust in the father if you're going to live as a christian you need to trust in the father trust the father he's got a plan for you and his plan is not for your harm it's for your good and for his glory so trust him he's he's already given us much more than like breadcrumbs to show us that oh we're going the right direction he gave us the cross he gave us his son so we know that there's nothing that can thwart his plan for us. Trust him. Secondly, look at number three, four, and six. Follow Jesus alone, worship Jesus who is God, and abide in Christ. Treasure the son. Let's say it that way. Treasure the son. Trust the father, treasure the son. If you are going to live as a believer, you must trust the father's plan, and you must treasure and cherish the son. He is God He alone is the way to be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. We must abide in him. And how do we do that? We do that by loving him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Don't stare at commandment keeping, stare at abiding. Love him. Treasure him more than anything in this world. That's why we say that over and over and over again. My daughter started praying that in her prayers God help us to love you more than anything in this world and I hope it sticks and goes from her heart and her ears down to her her head and her ears down to her heart that's what life is all about that's how you know a believer is a believer an unsaved believer is somebody who claims to love Jesus but doesn't a true believer loves and treasures and cherishes the son so trust the father treasure the son number three Uh, number uh, five and eight. Don't be afraid of the physical absence of Jesus. Trust the Spirit's guidance and work. So number three, I I would say it this way. Be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. So if you're going to be a believer and follow Christ, you need to trust God's plan. Don't be anxious. You need to treasure the Son, worship Him more than anything in this world. Abide in Him. And number three, you must be led by the Spirit. If you're not led by the Spirit, through the Word of God, then you cannot abide in Christ. You cannot live with an invisible Savior who's not here. He gave us his Spirit so that we could remain in him. Finally, if you go all the way back to the beginning, and I love that Jesus started with this. His discourse begins with love others. Love others. Humbly serve others. I've washed your feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do it. And then he backs it all up with beautiful, rich theology. So we'd say, number four, love others. Love others. If you want to follow Christ the way that He is commanding us to follow Him in John chapter 13 through 16, we could put it in three or in four very easy phrases trust the Father, treasure the Son, be led by the Spirit, and love others. That's what the Upper Room Discourse is all about. And He gave us unbelievable anchors into the precious promises of all of those aspects the father's plan the son's worth and value and glory the spirit's authority and leadership and the fact that if god has loved us the way that he has since he has we have to love others that way so take all those 10 smush them up together and fit them under those four headings and now you have two t's and two l's right and you have the person and work of each member of the Trinity. Trust the Father, treasure the Son, be led by the Spirit, love others. That's what Jesus says to his disciples over 2,000 years ago and to us today. If you want to follow me, that's how you have to live life. In my absence, though I'm always with you. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've given to us in your word over these last 20 sermons, spending time in the Upper Room Discourse. And as we transition now to... Uh, The High Priestly Prayer, uh, we don't want to leave the upper room without just an exclamation point, a firm, finalized look at the lessons that we've learned from 20 sermons on these four chapters. God, you are so clear, and I pray that as we have drilled down deep into these verses, and, and again, not as deep as we could have gone, these are inexhaustible. We could spend 200 sermons on these chapters. But as we've drilled down deep into these chapters and we've seen such rich theology, such practical outworking of the person and work of Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, God, I pray that this morning as we've just backed up and looked, we would be able to see clearly, oh, this is what the Christian life's all about. This is why John spends almost a fourth of his gospel on this one night, on just a few hours this is exactly what it means to be a follower of christ this is why john writes first john which i believe is an exposition of this upper room discourse because this is what it means to follow christ so god help us as we go from here we love you we claim that we sing that may we love you not just with our lips but with our life help us to trust the father help us to treasure the son Help us to be led, to actively submit ourselves to the Spirit and be led by Him. And then love others. That is what will define us as believers to a lost and dying world. Radical Christ-like love. May we live that out even this day as we enjoy fellowship together. And as we sing, I pray that um, this, this benediction, as it were, would be true. To him be praised for the glorious grace that he has granted to us. From the heights to the depths, the riches of the knowledge of Jesus Christ is our treasure. And may he be praised as we enjoy and savor his grace and his peace this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.